friends, welcome to episode 12 of Womankind. Um, just a reminder, if there's something that you want to hear us talk about, you can contact us via Facebook or Instagram or our website, womankindpodcast.com, or you can email us at womankindpodcast at gmail.com. Just throwing that out there for you. So I'm here today with Alyssa Palumbo. She is an author. She's published two novels, one called The Most Beautiful Woman in Florence, uh, which was released in April of this year. Um, and another called The Violinist of Venice, released in December of 2015. So hi, Alyssa. Hi, Kelsey. Thanks for having me. So glad you're here. I'm so excited. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> so I just want, because you are an author, we've had some other, like I said, we've had some other writers on the show, but you you have two published novels, historical fiction novels, yes. which I love. Uh, so how did you start as a writer? Um, so actually, from the time I was very young, I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, when I was a kid, I used to write little short stories, like, you know, not even necessarily fiction. I would write down things that happened to me, um, like, during the day. Um, and then I started writing, you know, fictional stories. I, I remember I had this one I wrote when I was maybe 10 or 11, and I would sit down and write a chapter that was, like, a page, and I would print it out and, like, have my parents read it, and then I would oh, write the next so chapter. Um, and then all through middle school and high school, I used to write, you know, I always wanted to write books, so I would write, you know, novels, quote-unquote. Some mm -hmm. of them were probably not technically long enough to be novels. Um, but when I was in middle school and high school, I used to write them in spiral-bound notebooks. And I, I would love it. be writing them during classes, and my teachers thought I was taking notes, but I was actually writing <laughs> story. Oh, that's good for me to know. I'll be on the lookout for that. Yeah. Well, it was really cool because I had this one teacher who actually knew that that's what I was doing. She was an English teacher, and um, she like let me keep doing it. She was okay with it. Um, so yeah, so I I had a, I've actually I actually wrote probably four or five novel length projects oh, before wow. I wrote The Violinist of Venice, which is the first published one. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, when I was working on that one, I felt like I was really onto something. I really had something that I thought was good enough to be published. Um, so I started, um, once I had a draft that I was happy with, I started querying literary agents, which um, basically nothing, nothing gets published anymore in book form, for the most part, um, without a literary agent. That, that is to say, traditionally published. If you're self-publishing, obviously that's different. Right. Um, so you need a literary agent first who will represent your work. Um, they have the contacts at publishing houses with different editors. Um, they know what certain editors are looking for. So you want to find an agent who represents the genre that you write. Um, so I queried agents. I signed with my agent, who she was actually my first choice agent. So that oh, worked awesome. out really well. Um, and then she sold Violinist, um, I think it was out on submission for like two and a half months, which was pretty fast. Yeah, that's very fast. Um, she sold it to St. Martin's Press, and they actually offered me a two-book contract, so then The Most Beautiful Woman in Florence was the second book of that two-book contract. Oh, nice. Um, so that, that's sort of my writing journey mm -hmm. in a little nutshell. Were, was it always historical fiction, or were, when you were younger, were you writing different genres? So when I was younger, I wrote a couple historical type things. Um, I also wrote a lot of things with like supernatural elements too mm -hmm. as a kid, and that's something I'm still interested in. Um, but yeah, I mean, historical fiction is my favorite genre to read for sure. So um, I feel like I didn't necessarily decide to write historical fiction. It was just that those were all the ideas I had mm -hmm. happened to be historical. So um, yeah, so that's... Mm -hmm. I envision myself definitely sticking with that genre for a while, for sure. Nice. So let's talk about the books a bit more specifically. Sure. So um, 
I don't know. I don't know. I can't pick. But do you want to talk about the older one or the newer one? Um, yeah, let's talk about... I guess let's talk about the newer one. Okay. Um, so my newest book, which came out, as Kelsey said, in April of this year, is called mm-hmm. The Most Beautiful Woman in Florence. Um, and it's the story of an uh, actual woman who really lived. Her name was Simonetta Vespucci. Um, and she is, according to legend, she's the woman in Botticelli's famous painting, The Birth of Venus. Oh, wow. Um, and she was kind of a celebrity, basically. There's no other word for it in Renaissance Florence. And she would, um, she was really considered the most beautiful woman in Florence. So that's where the title comes from. I just never considered that, like, I was like, oh, that's Venus. I never considered he was painting it from Mm -hmm. an actual model. Yeah. And if you look at a lot of his paintings, actually, a lot of the women in it Mm -hmm. are are Simonetta. She's Mm -hmm. actually in a lot of his paintings, but it's all the same woman. Yeah. Um, So like she would sort of be like out in the street and people would, you know, say things to her and, and, you know, profess their love to her. And there were Mm -hmm. men who used to wait outside her house and they would sing to her and they would bring her like flowers and all this stuff and, you know, leave her gifts and things. There were, I read sort of an anecdote about two men who fought a duel over, like one of, one of the men thought someone else was more beautiful than Simonetta. So they fought a duel over it. As you do. Who won? <laughs> I, that was not recorded. <laughs> but, um, huh. yeah, so she, like I said, she was really a celebrity. And mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting just, you know, there, there's a lot of parallels to today's celebrity culture, of course, and mm-hmm. the idea of, you know, a woman being known for her beauty. I mean, she really didn't, you know, she wasn't a public figure in any way. She was a private citizen, and she was not putting herself forward. But, you know, everyone just knew who she was because mm-hmm. she was so beautiful. Um, so in the book, I wanted to explore a lot of that and explore, um, you know, the, the title came about partly because, you know, she really was known as the most beautiful woman in Florence, but also part of what the book explores is, okay, in what ways is that a good thing? And in what ways is that not a good thing? Like in what ways is that beauty sort of a double-edged sword for her? So I, I hope I succeed in, in giving that question a fair treatment in the book. Well, I must admit I have not read either of the books, but after reading the descriptions of both of them, I'm very, very intrigued. They have kind of are reminiscent of a book that I read with my students called Girl with a Pearl Earring. About oh, yeah. Vermeer. And, yes. I mean, it's a fictional story, but it, yes. it kind of gives a backdrop to who that girl in the painting is. Yes. So, like, as far as our... Well, one is about an artist, and mm-hmm. one is about a musician in yes. a way. So what are, are those things that you've always been interested in as well? Or is that yeah. something you've researched for this? So The Violinist of Venice was the first one. And part of the reason that was the book I wrote at the time mm-hmm. that I wrote it is because I am a musician myself. I'm actually oh, okay. a um, classically trained singer. Um, so I'm not a violinist. I did, <laughs> I did take some violin lessons while I was doing research for the book. And mm-hmm. I'm terrible at it. <laughs> um, but I had a lot of fun and it was it was helpful for sure mm-hmm. for writing. Um, but so the, the music drew me into that story for sure. Um, and it's, it's to do with, so just to give a little synopsis of that book as mm-hmm. well, the main character in that book is actually a fictional woman um, who lives in 18th century Venice and her father doesn't think it's appropriate for her to study music, um, but she loves to play the violin. Her mother let her play it as a child. Um, so she starts sneaking out of her house to take violin lessons from Antonio Vivaldi, who was also a virtuoso violinist in addition to being a composer. Um, and they fall in love, which is a problem because Vivaldi is a priest. <laughs> yeah, that so, is a big problem. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, so a lot of uh, challenges ensue. And then, you know, part of what I got into with that is that um, Venice at that time had a really interesting musical tradition, and women were very much involved. 
Um, Vivaldi was teaching at an institution called the Pietà, which was essentially an orphanage. Um, and they would teach these foundling girls music, and that's who a lot of his music was written for. Um, but they couldn't perform in public. They performed from the choir loft in the church, and they had a screen basically in front of them, so you couldn't see them while they were performing. Um, so you had these women who, who were these phenomenal musicians, um, but they were sort of this religiously cloistered group. And so for a woman like my main character, who was a musician, um, you know, but she was just a, an ordinary citizen, there was really no, as an instrumentalist, there was really no way for her to perform. Um, you had female opera singers, but you didn't have female instrumentalists outside of sort of the church at this point. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the, the history of women in music is something that, as a musician myself, I'm really interested in, so that mm -hmm. allowed me to get into that a little mm -hmm. bit. Cool. That was a very cool. long description. No, no, that was <laughs> great. Sorry. Well, now I'm, like, more intrigued about the process of, like, writing historical fiction is different from writing other types of fiction mm -hmm. because you, how much of what you write is, like, real versus how much made up and how do you do research for that? Yeah, so, um, it's, it's tough. So with, it's tough to find the balance. Um, and I think... With violinist events, it was a little bit easier because my, my narrator, my heroine, was not a historical figure, so I was able to basically have her sort of do whatever I wanted in terms of plot. Um, and, you know, with Vivaldi, we know he was in certain places and certain times mm -hmm. doing certain things, so I had to adhere to that, but, um, you know, he wasn't my main character. So I had a little more flexibility in that way. Um, and with my second book, having an actual woman I was writing about it was a little more limiting, but also not a ton is known about her life, so I was able to take some liberties. Um, but I mean, in terms of the research, you just kind of want to read anything you can find about, you know, of course, the actual historical figures involved in your book, but also the, the place, the time period, um, you know, clothing, pretty much, pretty much everything you can think of. Um, and it is tricky because you can never research everything. Right. Like, you're always going to miss something, and that's just the nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you want to try and do the best you can and, and seek out as many sources as you can. Um, and just, it's a lot of reading, but it's also, you know, in the cases of my two books, um, listening to music, looking at artwork. It's mm -hmm. not it's not all just reading. Mm -hmm. um, there's other ways you can investigate, too. So you can make it a little bit of a multimedia experience. And, and it, like, experiencing keep it learning how to play the violin. Yes, like, that's yes, exactly. very hands-on. Yes. Cool. Now, I've always wanted to ask a historical fiction writer this. Um, <laughs> do you ever worry about, like, having things in your stories that would offend? And I know that, you know, the people in your mm -hmm. stories are long dead, but right. like, do you ever worry about offending the family? Because I've come across some historical fiction books where, um, particularly, I don't know if you've ever read City of Light. Um, I have not. I'm, I'm meaning to. But. So, in that book... Um, there is a historical figure that was in Buffalo, mm -hmm. and he is portrayed as doing... I, I don't want to give away anything, because it's kind of like a main point, but he does something yeah. very awful sure. to the main character of the book. Yeah. And um, it's not known whether or not that was true. Yeah. And so I read that, and I thought about that, like, what, like we're here in the city where he lives, right. and what if you know, his family read the story and they were offended by that? So sure. is that something you've ever considered or worried about? Um... Not not quite in that sense, only because everything I've written so far has been the real figures that in, are involved. It was so long ago that mm -hmm. there's not really... I don't want to say there's not any living descendants, because I don't... Well, 
not of Vivaldi, there's not. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like the Medici family and my second mm-hmm. book, for instance, there might be some distant mm-hmm. relatives, but I mean, it was so long ago that with those time periods, there is a lot that we don't know for sure. So mm-hmm. it's, with that book, I could see it being, if I was writing something that recent, I think right. I might be a little more nervous because that is not too long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're writing about the 1400s, I swear. Yeah, that's yeah I, I didn't really. A little far back. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really worry about that too much. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I did think a little bit about, you know, with Vivaldi having this affair with this woman in this book. I'm like, well, you know, is that really fair? Like, we don't know if he did or not. But um, sort of the idea for the story came because... Um, Later in his life, he had a relationship with an opera singer. Her name was mm-hmm. Anna Giraud, and it was very scandalous, and people assumed she was his mistress. Um, but then I read in a few places the suggestion that she might have been his daughter, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting, and so I thought if that was the case, well, who was her mother? So that was sort of the idea oh, okay. for okay. The Violinist to Venice. So in that case, I there was sort of this little hole in history mm-hmm. that like seemed plausible enough that I thought it made an okay story. Mm-hmm. Like, it... it you know, there was this idea out there, mm-hmm. and it wasn't something that I had created. Oh, so, okay. In that, in that sense, I thought, well, you know, this is something that's sort of out there floating. I think I'll just run with that. Yeah, like I said, I, I found it in a couple places, so I thought, well, this is interesting. This would be something I could write about. That's, I like it. So, another question, why Italy? Yeah, <laughs> so, um, I'm Italian myself mm-hmm. on my dad's side, um, I, I've always been really interested in Italian history. It's, like, so fascinating. It's, it's, I mean, it's got everything. It's got mm-hmm. scandal and murder <laughs> and sex and war, and it's got, like, it's like Game of Thrones. Like, it's, <laughs> it's got everything. <laughs> um, and so it was something I started reading about just on my own. I never mm-hmm. really learned about it in school. Um, and I got really interested, and I got interested in a lot of the, the places and the people and the politics of it. Um, so it's, it's my favorite country to visit. It's my favorite place to read about and to write about. Um, I will. I will be writing about other places. I actually. I have a book I can't talk about really yet. <laughs> um, it's actually. It is set in the United States. Um, oh, okay. so I'm not going to stick exclusively to Italy. But mm-hmm. um, there's just there's just so much there. There's just so much mm-hmm. history, and you know because it was not a unified country until fairly recently. Mm-hmm. You know. Venice, Florence, Rome, Mm -hmm. Naples, you know, all these places were their own countries, basically. And so they all, even if you go to Italy today, you can really see the differences. Um, So there's just, like, so much history there and just so much to dig into for a writer. Mm -hmm. So I imagine you did travel there for research. I did. For both books, I did, yes. That's so nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes, that was a lot of fun. I mean, it was really helpful, too. It was, Mm -hmm. you know, to see certain places that were in the books that I had you know, at that point, written about but not seen, that was really awesome and, and really helpful. Nice. Yeah. I like that. Um, so, through writing these novels, um, this might be a weird question for an author, but what is your mission? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, of course, to tell a good story. Um, and I, you know, I hope that in the same way that there's been books that I love that have meant a lot to me, I hope that my books do that for someone else. Um, I mean, and, you know, especially considering this is the Womankind podcast, I I will (laughs) certainly talk about how um, it is really important to me to write, um, you know, realistic, fully fleshed out, very resilient female characters. And, like, resilient is the word I like a lot to Mm -hmm. talk about my characters. Um, And I think it's a word that applies 
very well to women. Like I think that's one of the things that I love about women is that we are resilient. We can endure a lot and we can go through a lot and we come out on the other side. Um, so that's, that's what I try to have my characters do. And I, I like to think that they all have something to say about gender and expectations mm -hmm. and what life was like for a woman in their time period, whatever that time period was. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I feel like I would maybe, I don't know. I, I feel like the more I learn about history, the more I'm surprised about how yeah. much women did do yeah. in those time periods. Yeah. And that's something that's been really interesting. Um, and I, I think, um, and you, I believe you've talked about this on the podcast before, but we tend to think of women's progress as being linear. Like mm -hmm. we made steps forward, steps forward, steps forward, and we're constantly making steps forward. But that's not really the case. Like there have been times where we've made steps forward and steps back. So for, for instance, um, in 18th century Venice, women actually had a fair amount of sexual freedom, which mm -hmm. I found really surprising. Interesting. Um, and then, you know, you compare that to, like, the Victorian era, 100 years later, that was not the case. No. Women, had, I mean, and you're, the, you know, you're comparing two different countries, too, but um, it's just interesting how you, you think that everybody in the past was so straight-laced and so old-fashioned and, you know, and that's not always the case. And it is, it's fun to find those things, and it is surprising. Mm -hmm. But the, the more I read about history, the less surprised I get. Right. right. Like, <laughs> I, we, I feel like just, you know, living in modern times and the way that we learn, mm -hmm. we, we don't learn about matriarchal societies. Right. We don't learn about those situations because, right. well, we know who wrote most of those of things course. that we've been learning right. about. So we, we kind of, that those things are left out, which right. is sad. And I think that's another great thing about historical fiction is that um, it is, so the readership of historical fiction is primarily women. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of historical novels are written by women and from the point of view of women. And I think mm -hmm. that's, that's a way, important. yeah, of us sort of reclaiming those historical narratives because, you know, history still is, of course there's female historians and there's more and getting to be more and more of them, but um, you know, that is still a male-dominated field as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, of course, a historical novel isn't the same as a biography, but it's still mm -hmm. a way of, you know, reminding people that, yes, women in the past were doing things, and because right. they did things, we got to be where we are now. That's something that I am so interested in. A couple mm -hmm. years ago, I traveled to Greece with my students, mm -hmm. and something that I learned while I was there, which I guess I just had never thought about before, was feminist archaeology, where women are going back and looking at historical sites from a new perspective yeah. and looking at it from a female perspective. And I think they've discovered in some cases that, you know, when men went and looked in a particular area, they were like, oh, well, these were tools for war. Right. But then given a second look, they were actually used for a different purpose. Yeah. And women were the ones using them. And so right. I don't know a whole lot about that at this yeah. point, but I just find, I found that so interesting. And so the same thing like you were saying, really they're, they're retelling stories that have just been like common knowledge right um and the one thing i'll talk about this on a later episode but they found that a lot of the the cave paintings mm -hmm. in france were originally painted by women that's oh. like a, a speculation that they've oh, come across cool. yeah and so i'll talk about that on a later episode because i know mm -hmm. there's i'd like to do more reading before i talk <laughs> more about it but i want to come back to what you were saying about the characters mm -hmm. being resilient because yeah. i really like that and i really like um and like i said i haven't read your books yet, but um, in terms of the characters being real and facing challenges and having real aspects, I think that that is really important for women to have that as mm -hmm. role models. Um, and there was a question in there somewhere, but I kind of <laughs> lost it. Well, I just, I always think of um, 
when I talk to my students about literature, the mm-hmm. example that I use, which is kind of just an example they all know, is Katniss from The Hunger Games. Yeah. Because she's a character that has to make hard decisions. Yeah. And she's a character that sometimes chooses the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, right. And then has to deal with the consequences. Right. And she's a character who is sometimes very selfish. Yeah. And I find that my students are like, well, we hate her, or we love her, yeah. and it, there's... And I don't know, there, there's just this, like, real human aspect to it of yeah. making a decision. Yeah. Well, and actually, yeah, let's talk about that for a second, because something that I notice um, in sort of the literature publishing world is the way that, and this is a conversation that I, I have seen and had with other authors, but the idea that, you know, literature is sort of peopled with a lot of anti-heroes. Like, mm-hmm. think, think Heathcliff. You know, like, people like to swoon over Heathcliff, and, like, he's I worse. get it, but he's like a <laughs> terrible person, but, like, everybody loves him, and mm-hmm. he, and from, from a, a writing craft standpoint, he's a great character. Definitely. Like, he's a great character. He's fun, to, he's great to read about, you wouldn't necessarily want to meet him in real life. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's just one example, but I, I have found, and, and certainly others have pointed this out and written about it, um, as well, but... When it's women who are quote unquote unlikable characters, then people really yes, don't people like them. Hate them. <laughs> and it's you know it's like it's such an obvious double standard. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that in any book, if you have a character like there's characters I hate, but I keep reading the book mm-hmm. because you know. And and the trick is to okay, you have this horrible character. Like I think Gone Girl is a good example. Mm-hmm. That's a book that a lot of people had read. Like everybody in that book was terrible. Mm-hmm. They were like not nice people. They were, they did terrible things to each other, but like I couldn't put the book down. Right. And I can't put my finger on why it was, it's, it was a book that you wanted to keep reading Mm -hmm. because you were invested in the characters and maybe, I don't know, maybe I wanted to see them Mm -hmm. get their comeuppance. Like, I don't know, but, um, it was a great book. And I think that, I think that it's, it's hard, you know, to write a female character who, like you said, she might make a a stupid choice and, Mm -hmm. you know, certainly in my book my characters make stupid choices and like I, I, I get frustrated with them sometimes, but it's, you know, that's life. And, and I think that in literature as in life, men have more latitude to do those things than women do. Well, I think that's part of what makes people hate those characters so much is Mm -hmm. because you see some of your own humanity in it. And sometimes you're, you would be the one making that poor decision. Right. And you want to think of yourself as someone who yeah. would always do the right thing. Right. And so I think it's just hard to, to stomach that, but especially hard to stomach that when it is a woman right. in that position. Exactly. And it, it just speaks to the larger issue in society of the pressures that we place on women. And like, for instance, I don't... Do you watch Game of Thrones? I don't know. I Please don't watch it. That's okay. <laughs> but so... Um, I'm, I'm familiar with the story, but I, yes. I don't watch it. <laughs> um, so there, there's a character Wait, in his name is... Wait, is that a spoiler? Because I feel mm-hmm. like we should warn if there's no, a spoiler. No, no, okay. no spoilers. I mean... <laughs> No spoilers. We're sort of speaking in generalities. Um, but so there's a character, um, Sansa Stark, mm-hmm. who um, when the when the show started and in, in the books as well, she's a, she's like 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. She's kind of an idiot. Oh, I she's know. Very nice. Right. Picture, yeah. She's like kind of annoying, and mm-hmm. but she's a teenager, and like she has a crush on this guy who essentially turns out to be horrible. And so mm-hmm. I think like a lot of people watching and reading hated her for that. And so, like, now, at this point in the show, she's, without spoilers, like, she's been through a lot of things. Um, and now she's very sort of hardened and savvy, and she knows how to play the game, where she completely had was completely naive before. And, like, in in listening to people talk about her and, and write about her, um, 
I just feel like there's a lot of casual misogyny directed towards her because it was they hated her when she was like young and naive, and now they still hate pe- not everybody. Some people hate her now that she's you know more wise and more worldly mm-hmm. and more intelligent and and a little more hardened. And it's kind of like okay, like, you hate her no matter what. Right. Like maybe maybe she's not the problem. Maybe <laughs> you know, and and she's just one example. But I've seen sort of that treatment of other female characters as well in movies and books and whatnot. And I, I just always think it's interesting because there's characters on that show that are so horrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, really? You're picking on this dark? Girl? Yeah. <laughs> like, really? That's, she's your problem in the show right now? Um, but so, then, yeah. so in those complaints, is it like, okay, so now she's like this and we wish that she was the way she was before? Or is it just No, it's just not bad. They, people just hate her, it seems oh. like. And again, that's not mm-hmm. every bit of it. You know, certain things I've, I've either heard people say myself or... Mm-hmm. In, in things I've read about the show, because um, I'm a big fan, so I read a lot of the mm-hmm. essays and the think pieces and stuff about mm-hmm. it. Um, but yeah, and it's kind of like, well, let's unpack that a little bit. Like, why? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> why definitely. do we hate her so much? <laughs> I've really, I've really tried. Well, actually, I haven't tried that hard. I've watched like the first three episodes, and I heard that it takes a little yeah. bit longer to get into it. It's not for everybody. Like, okay. I, I, I love it. There are absolutely aspects of it that are problematic. Um, but I enjoy it. I totally see why people don't like it. But um, I usually I'm into shows. Well, I don't know yeah. any like cult show. I mm-hmm. seem to really enjoy. <laughs> so so it's hard for me to not be yeah. as into it <laughs> to as be in the else. Yeah. <laughs> Someday maybe. I just feel like it's a really big time investment, and maybe I, yeah. I don't have that. That right is now. true. Yeah. Whether you're watching the show or reading the books, mm-hmm. it's a big. Time I don't know that I could ever <laughs> read the books. I feel like it's just. I would need, like, a notebook next to me to write down all the characters, and, like, I feel yeah. like that's, that would be very stressful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And, and there's people that are, like, super into the books and, like, have read them multiple times and mm-hmm. done really close reads, and they'll be like, oh, and this character, like, did this, this, I'm like, I don't remember that. <laughs> like, I probably read, like, 6,000 pages of these books at this oh point, like, I don't remember. <laughs> um... So, at this point, is there anything else? We are going to get into your, like, personal views, which you've heard a little bit of. Yeah. Um, But is there anything else about your books that you want to talk about or anything else that you want our listeners to know um, that we haven't mentioned yet in that realm? Um, yeah. I think I I pretty much covered it. Okay. We covered Um, a lot of ground. Yeah. I guess I I do have one more thing. Oh, okay. No, (laughs) go ahead. I have, um, I, I, like, so a term you sort of hear a lot, and I think we've kind of alluded to this Mm -hmm. a little bit, but you hear people talk a lot about strong female characters, Mm -hmm. and I have a little bit of a bone to pick with that There's, like, a, on Netflix, there's, like, a category that's, like, oh, it shows the strong female leads. Huh. And so, so I, I'm, like, of two minds about that phrase, Mm -hmm. and this is something that, um, I, I've seen other, again, I've seen other authors sort of debate and talk about. Um, on the one hand, I like it, because I think that it's, just sort of become this shorthand where we sort, we know what it means. Like, we know it's a character who either is, maybe she's physically strong in the sense that she's like Katniss, like mm-hmm. she sort of has these sort of martial arts skill mm-hmm. sets in a way, um, and she can actually, you know, she's going out and kicking some butt. Or it's somebody who's powerful or very, like, emotionally strong. Like, we, we sort of know what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I think the term is kind of problematic because we don't say strong male character. It's, right. it's inher- inherently a gendered term. Mm-hmm. And I think that it also excludes sometimes characters who do make bad decisions and who do, you know, I think there's also sort of this implication inherent in that term that, like, you can't, if you're a strong female character, you know, you can't 
break down or ask for help. And it's like, well, these are things that real women do. Um, so I think it's, like I said, I think it can be a useful term because we know what we're talking about when we use it. But, um, you know, you, you see it applied to a lot of things in a sense that it's almost also ceased to have. Mm-hmm. meeting in a way yeah it's a kind of a pervasive term <laughs> right like any movie or show where you have a woman doing something kind of on her own she's right a strong female exactly lead. and it's like just because this woman has agency I mean don't we all or, or sh- I mean I guess I shouldn't say that I guess we don't right. not everybody has agency you know could be due mm-hmm. to a lot of factors but you know if if this is a character in a movie or a story chances are they're doing something and that's why we're Right, have that's you started why we're about watching them, this? Yeah, <laughs> so like I think it's it's kind of a weird term. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think that kind of coincides with the t- well, maybe not as much because I feel like strong female lead does have positive connotations. Yeah, um, but like I, chick flick is such a problematic <laughs> way of referring to something. Yeah, I think we've talked about this on the show before, but it's it's useful like for categorizing things, but right. That's, has a very negative connotation right. to it. And along those lines, too, in publishing, um, well, there's chick lit, right. which is kind of not something you hear as much anymore. But then there's yeah. also women's fiction, um, which is a term that I don't like, even though technically my books are considered historical women's fiction, but because it, it's another term that it's like, we don't ever say men's fiction. Yeah, it's, it's just, just not fiction. a thing. Right. It's, so, so women's fiction is basically a book written by a woman about a woman. Mm-hmm. Why does that need it? Why isn't it just fiction? Like, why isn't it just a book? And also, wouldn't it be beneficial for men to read books written by women? Um, and absolutely. Women to read, like, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. and that's what kind of went along with the term like chick flick. Like, right? Just because a movie has an emotion in it doesn't right. mean it's not for men. Right. Like, exactly. It's probably good for everyone to be viewing that and right. getting some emotional intelligence. Right. And that's like such such a big part of what we need more of. Especially mm-hmm. today I think we need, you know, we need to be consuming media by and about people that are not like us. So exactly. whether that's, you know, men reading or watching things about women, mm-hmm. um, you know, certainly white people reading mm-hmm. books or, or watching films made by people of color. Um, you know, things that reflect the LGBT experience, you know, Mm -hmm. things like that. Like, you know, we should be really seeking out things that are different from our experience so that we, that's how you develop that sense of empathy. Definitely. For others. That was my rule last, this summer I'm working, so I don't have enough time to read, but last summer Mm -hmm. my rule is that any book that I was reading had to be written by someone that was not from the United States. Oh, okay. So it, it really like diversified yeah. what I was reading, which was really nice. Yeah, and I've seen, you know, online different, like, reading challenges and stuff mm-hmm. that are sort of along the same lines, or, you know, mm-hmm. it, um, there's one, I forget the name of it, but it's like, you know, read, one of it's read a book by a person of color, read a book mm-hmm. in translation, you know, all these all these different things to get you to sort of expand your horizons. Read a graphic novel, which is, you know, something that not a lot of people read, so, yeah. Nice. Alright, so let's hear a little bit more about you as a sure. person. So, this question I ask everybody that you can answer however you like, <laughs> what's your story? Well, <laughs> um, so I already talked about my writing. That, mm-hmm. That's definitely a big part of my life. Um, I'm born and raised in the Buffalo area. I went to high school at Sweet Home High School, which is in Amherst. It's actually right next to the UB North campus for listeners in the area. I'm sure you probably know where that is. Um, and then I went to Canisius College in Buffalo for um, undergrad. And I, I graduated with degrees in ink. English and creative writing, um, and I also did a minor in music while I was there as well. Um, and yes, I still live in the area. Um, 
Yeah. <laughs> okay, that works. So what does it mean to be a woman in 2017? And also, what does it mean to you personally to be a woman in 2017? I mean, I think that... So, so in 2017, I think we're facing... Um, like I mentioned before, women's progress isn't linear. And, you know, you take two steps forward, you might take one step back. I think we're sort of on the precipice of taking a step back. Mm -hmm. um, with, you know, what's happening politically, the current administration, um, certainly. Uh, so I think that that's something that we all need to be aware of and to be doing everything in our power to prevent that step back if mm -hmm. we possibly can. Um, you know, I, and sort of speaking to the more general point, I don't think there's any right way to be a woman. I think that however any woman feel, you know, whatever whatever her truth is, I guess, whatever mm -hmm. she feels. And that's, you know, every, you, you're a woman, you're a woman. And, you know, whatever that means to you, I think is, is right. There's no mm -hmm. right or wrong way. Um, I mean, to me personally, just speaking from my own personal experience about what it means to be a woman. I mean, I think like, I sort of go back to that word resilience. Like I, I just think that women are very resilient and we can endure a lot and we can go through a lot. Um, you know, so obviously some people like those bigger challenges at some of us than others. Um, but I think that women sort of always pull through. And I think that a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, I think, I think many women have very strong female friendships. Um, I think that's a good thing. And I think that I know in, in my life, you know, my close friends have pulled me through a lot and I have done the same for them. Um, so yeah, I think, I think we're very resilient. And I think that the world doesn't give us credit for how strong we are, and I think we don't give ourselves enough credit for that either. I think one of my takeaways from this experience, like, every, almost every single person has said, like, their female friendships are yeah. a major point yes. of what they love about being a woman. So I think that's, like, pretty pervasive among everyone. Yeah, yeah, and, it, right, and it, like I said, having experienced that, and, you know, I grew up, like, my mother has a lot of close female friends mm -hmm. as well, so I, I, saw that as important mm -hmm. as a child and you know it's different you I think you sort of learn to appreciate a little more as an adult you know like mm -hmm. when you're in school you have your friends you see in school and then you get into high school and it's kind of like okay who do you keep in touch with once you're out of high school mm -hmm. and I think once you get into adulthood you kind of know there's people you should cut from your life and there's people that you really need to keep and I think I think we all I mean men or women I think we all go through that mm -hmm. at some point um but I mean yeah I you know just, it's, I've just, I'm just very grateful for my friends and to have, I have a very close group of friends, um, and I'm just very grateful to have them. And I think that, you know, they make me a better woman and I hope mm -hmm. I do the same for them. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, so aside from that, are there any other things that are your favorite part of being a woman? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, friendships. Um, also I, I like that. I think that women are, I guess, socialized is probably the right word to be more in touch with our emotions. Like we're sort of quote unquote allowed to be mm -hmm. emotional in ways that I think men are socialized to not be. Mm -hmm. oh, that's one of and my I, favorite parts. I yeah. <laughs> and I think that would be such a hard way to live. And I, right. I'm glad that that's not, and I don't think men should have to feel that way either. I think, you know, it's a case of the patriarchy hurts everybody. It hurts men too. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's an example of it. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that that is a good thing. I, 
you know, I'm glad that we're allowed to express our emotions. I think it's, I think it's better <laughs> to express your emotions than keep them inside. I've said in the past, I think, or I hope that that's something that is changing for men. Yeah, I agree. Forward. I don't know how much it's changing, mm-hmm. but it's, I feel like it, there's yeah. something happening right. there. Well, cause there's that really poisonous idea of like, you know, man up. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, no, right. <laughs> I mean, if you, if, you know, if, you are having an issue or you're struggling with something, you shouldn't quote unquote man up and not talk about it and not seek help if you need it or, or what have you. I think that, I think that's a really, like I said, a really poisonous idea that is really harmful to men that needs to go away. And like you said, I, I, I think it's changing a little bit. I think there's been a lot of work towards, especially destigmatizing like mental health. Like mm-hmm. I, I have read that men, have a harder time like admitting that they need help because of that sort of idea. Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, and I, I think that that's changing a little, so I hope that continues to change. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So to go hand in hand with that, what are the hardest parts of being a woman then? Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think, I think the thing that first pops into my head is the fact that our government is still debating our rights to our bodies. That is something that I don't like at all mm-hmm. um that you know that's sort of a big one for me um but also just you know the fact that I have to walk out to my car after work and be looking over my shoulder and you know be nervous about walking somewhere by myself mm-hmm. um you know that is something that I think about a lot and it mm-hmm. it bothers me that it's so natural for all women like we we sort of all do it and don't think about it like the fact that you don't put your drink down anywhere. You know what I mean? Right. Like that, that, that has to become so internalized for us. Right. I hate that. I hate it so much. Like, th- like it's internalizing me to the point that I was actually at a family function. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it might've been like Christmas Eve or something like mm-hmm. that. I had a glass of wine and I put it down on the table behind me to go use the bathroom. And I turned to my brother and I was about to say, watch my drink. So and I was like, I am at my like aunt and uncle's house. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's so, yeah, like, how it's ingrained, ingrained it is in yeah. me to like either take it with me or like, you know, have somebody I trust, like, mm-hmm. like have it right in front of them and watch it while I'm gone. And like, I call myself and I'm like, what am I, what am I doing? But that's, you know, that's, that's the point. Yeah. That's, that's where we're sort of at. And that's something that, that I hate. And I think that, I think that there are a lot of men that don't understand that. Mm-hmm. Not c- certainly some of them do, but, um, you know, they, a lot of times they don't feel uncomfortable in the same way or, you right. know, like and they've it, never experienced that exactly. ever. And right. so that makes it even more challenging for them right. to understand at all. Right. And especially with things like, you know, catcalling that right. obviously mm-hmm. happens to us all the time and it makes us very uncomfortable, you know, and men don't see that because mm-hmm. if you're with a man, they that won't do it happen. to you. Right. right. <laughs> so like they don't see it. And of course, you know, if they're a good guy, they don't do it either. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so back to, I just saw a meme yesterday or today mm-hmm. that was like a picture I mean I don't know what it was but I don't know anything with writing on it that's a picture on the internet that's a meme right <laughs> right um, I so, think so. <laughs> so it was a picture of um like something that was in a bathroom in mm-hmm. like Sweden or okay. something and it was like a dispenser of like tampons and then mm-hmm. condoms and then there was a sign in the middle that said who's watching your drink right now if you're in here yeah. And so the woman who took the picture of it, she wrote on the meme or whatever that she had her friend look in the men's room and there was nothing of course. in there. Of course there wasn't. And so it's like, you know, women are warned, like, yeah. watch your drink, but right. how come men or 
people, I guess, in general, aren't warned, don't put things in drinks. Like, is that... Exactly. I mean, that should be something that people have to be taught, but evidently it is. Right. And it's like, you know, the the burden is always on women to be protecting themselves. And like, there's, you know, a whole laundry list of things that we, quote unquote, can't do because something bad will happen to us. And like, okay, yeah, there's thing... The reality is like, there's things that you shouldn't do because Mm -hmm. it will you know, it will improve your odds of safety. You know, you can do everything right right and something horrible can still happen to you. But like, you know, there are things that I, of course, try to avoid because I don't want to put myself into a bad situation. But why should I have to do that? That's Mm -hmm. what makes me so angry is that I I shouldn't have to. I should be able to go anywhere at any hour Mm -hmm. by myself or not and not have to worry about it. But that's, Mm -hmm. that's not the reality. And again, you know, we don't teach men that's no one, no one's ever said explicitly don't put something in a woman's drink right but it happens and like we're the ones that have to bear the responsibility mm-hmm. of that and it's it's not fair <laughs> I mean I definitely reached a point in my life like in my like late 20s where mm-hmm. I was like if I'm if I need to go somewhere and it's night I'm going yeah and um, I mean I don't Maybe that isn't the smartest, but I definitely put myself in more because I just was fed up with it as I I got older and I just started putting myself in situations like, oh, well, it's dark and I'm parked on the street and I'm just going for it. And I mean, it's amazing like how risky that feels. I know. I'm just doing something that like I'm going to a party or I'm going to a bar somewhere to like see friends and it just, it it feels, I don't know, but but I'm putting myself in danger, but I'm just like, well, I have to, so I'm doing it. Yeah, I completely agree Mm -hmm. with you, and it's, you know, there's situations like, you know, I'm going to live my life, I'm going to go do this thing, and, like, I've actually gone to, um, like, a few concerts by myself, Mm -hmm. which, like, is mostly because none of my friends are, like, into the same music as me, and I'm like, well, I'm not going to not go, because I don't even want to go with me, so I'm Mm -hmm. just going to go, and the first time I did that, I was really nervous, Mm -hmm. and you know, it shouldn't have to be that way. And I kind of struggled with it a little bit. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. is this a really bad idea? Should I not be doing this? And then I was like, it's my favorite band in the world in town. Like, I've never seen them before. I'm going. Like, and, and, you, and you I'm going. And I, everything was fine. And, um, yeah. <laughs> but I also think, and I don't know, tell me if you think this is, like, a male versus female thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I think women are taught, like, not that, like, going to a concert by yourself is dangerous, mm-hmm. but I think we just don't go places alone or like we aren't taught to do that. I agree. And I don't know. I actually don't, I can't really speak to whether or not men are taught the same. I can tell you that I probably wouldn't have even thought of like doing something like that alone until I was over the age of 25. And maybe that's just me and the way I was like socialized. But yeah. um, Yeah. I, at some point in my life I was like, okay, I'm doing things by myself Yeah, because I just have to do them. And even if no one's around, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think, I think for women, we are definitely conditioned to not go anywhere alone, as you mm-hmm. said, um, like for our own safety, which mm-hmm. is ridiculous, but that's a thing. <laughs> um, but then I'll, I, mean, I think there's also a social element of like, and I, I, I can't speak to whether this is true for men. I think it probably is, but I think there's also an element of like, oh, that's so sad. You're going somewhere by yourself. Right. And I think that's kind of ridiculous too. Like I'll, I, I go to eat. In, mm. in restaurants sometimes by myself I actually mm. find it really relaxing like mm. I don't have to talk to anyone and <laughs> and like I, you know sometimes you just kind of need like to just be you sit alone. there and just like be and everything's fine and like I said I find it really mm. relaxing which is not to it's not to say like I don't have people to go to eat with but just but sometimes, like, sometimes just I'm just like okay I'm just gonna go because like I want to go to this restaurant and like 
I'm just gonna go. <laughs> I honestly, I was thinking back, because I love going to the movies, and I actually love going to the movies alone. Yeah. And the first time that I went, I feel like it was, like, this was maybe, like, 15 years ago now. I went to the movies alone, mm-hmm. and I was like, oh my god, I can't believe I just did that. <laughs> like, it was just like this big step for me and now I'm yeah. like why was that such a big deal yeah. <laughs> especially in a movie because you don't you're not gonna talk to the person next to you right anyways. right it's not but I was like wow that was like really big of me to do that yeah and now I'm just like okay I'm just gonna go to the movies right <laughs> exactly right and especially like if you know if there's a movie you want to see and your boyfriend doesn't or your friends mm-hmm. don't then like just go. Yeah, and I, couldn't, I couldn't find anyone to see the movie Room with me, and I went to see that by myself. That was not a good movie to see by myself. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's, like, very Yeah, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that, I probably shouldn't have seen that movie at all. <laughs> it was yeah. really well, I, I guess I think I, I feel like people should do more things alone. Like, I mm-hmm. think when you are that, like, at home with yourself, I think that's mm-hmm. a really good thing. Oh, and I, I think that a lot of people are not. And mm-hmm. I, I think that it's, I think that it's a really good and healthy thing to mm-hmm. spend time by yourself. And I Absolutely. know, like, the concerts I've gone to by myself, like, I probably could have, like, gotten a friend to go with me, <laughs> but, like, if it's a band I'm really into, I, like, don't want to be worrying about whether they're having a good time. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> wait, what kind of music do you listen to? So I actually listen to a lot of heavy metal. Oh, okay. Which okay. is, like I said, not something really any of my friends are into. Mm-hmm. But so if it's something I am really excited about, like, if you bring someone that's just, like, there That's, like, okay about it, they're... Right, and yeah. you know, like, you're... Because you brought them, you're kind of, like, worried. Are they having a good time? Mm. And, like, I just don't want to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. I like that. <laughs> um, so, we may have touched on this a little bit. Is there anything you think the world needs to know about women that it doesn't know already? Yeah, I mean, I think, like I said, I, I don't think that we get enough credit from the world or from ourselves for just how strong we are. And I think that that's something that women and men need to remember and need to think about that, you know, women throughout history have endured a lot and, you know, we, we fought through it and, you know, now we have rights that a hundred years ago women didn't dream of. I mean, in the 1970s, you couldn't even open a credit card in your own name if you were a woman. Um, the college I, I went to didn't oh admit gosh. women until the seventies, and so really, yeah, Canisius College. They had a yes, they had a teaching college and like a nursing college, okay. I think. But they were sort of separate from. It was like only for women. Mm-hmm. Like the men went to, you know, the men had all these other programs at the college, and I just so can't even. Yeah, and then I think it was in the seventies that they finally like mm-hmm. integrated it, and so. I didn't you know, know that wasn't that. so long ago. And so, you know, go back 100 years and think, 100 years ago, we didn't have the right to vote. So we could barely wear pants. Right. Yeah, I think, um, I remember my mom telling me, and not to, like, date her too much, but when she was in elementary school, women, ha- women girls had to wear skirts or dresses. Mm-hmm. Like, you could not wear pants to school. That was not allowed. Mm-hmm. And that sort of, the first time she told me that, it sort of blew my mind. Mm-hmm. But I guess I never thought about that that much like I, I was raised going to Catholic school so everyone wore yeah, a uniform sure. skirt but we always had the option to wear pants like, oh okay was yeah a, like very few people did but now mm-hmm. more and more students do right. that but yeah. yeah very interesting yeah but just yeah. to not even have the option is like yeah, like I said when she told me that it kind of bizarre. blew my mind I'm like yeah. really <laughs> but yeah so you know so we have come through a lot throughout women's history mm-hmm. and Hopefully, we're only going further forward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, on that line of thinking, what changes would you like to see for women in the future? Um, I would like us to very much have full reproductive control over our bodies. 
Um, that's a big one for me. Something else I'd like to see is I, I really want to see more women supporting each other. Um, and I know, you know, we talked about this with when you have really good female friends, you know, you sort of all support each other. But I think that in society at large, we're really, and I, I, I want to say this is probably especially true of white women, um, we're sort of conditioned to see each other as the competition, whether it's for we're competing over men, we're competing over jobs, we're competing over who's thinner, who's prettier, who's this, that. And that's just bad. Like, we're, you know, at a certain point, we become our own worst enemies. And I, I don't like that. And I want to see women supporting each other, lifting each other up, you know, really embracing what we have in common. You know, certainly everyone's different and we all have different beliefs, but I, I think I'd like to see women, you know, who we can all relate to each other. I think on some level, I want to see us really try to embrace that and really mm -hmm. lift each other up. And I don't think that that means that we can't criticize women who are problematic or who do things or say things that are harmful to others. I think that you should criticize women in those situations, but I think I'm talking more about the sense of, you know, sort of putting each other down and, and because, you know, you think that improves you in some way. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, that's true of, of humans in general, right. of course, but I, I um, do, you, do you see what I'm saying? No, I'm, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not like explaining this well. I no, just no. feel like there's this sense of competition among women and I, it makes me sad. It makes me sad when, you know, we put each other down instead of trying to lift each other up. Well, I guess I was just thinking like, cause I, I've definitely thought about that too. Mm -hmm. And I just was wondering and I can't answer these questions because I'm not a man, but I was wondering <laughs> if men are in competition with each other mm -hmm. too in the same way. Because I feel like there's right. this sense of men not necessarily being in competition because they feel like they can have access to anything. And yeah. maybe with women, the competition is we feel like there are like limited resources. So we yeah. need to like tear each other down to get where we are. I think that's true. And, and I so, also think... I'm yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, no. I, that was kind of the end of the thought, but I, I just never really thought about it in that way before yeah and I think too it's it's not even competition always so much as it is a sense of judgment that mm -hmm. we sort of women sort of tend to you know there's a lot of double standards in society for women of course which is another thing I hate about <laughs> being a woman but um like you know w among women ourselves you know like if you breastfeed your child there are women who will judge you for that if you choose not to breastfeed your child there's women who will judge you for that if you stay home with your kids Right. You'll be judged for that. If you go to work after you have kids, you'll be judged for that. And, you know, you can't, we can't win. And it's yeah, like, we, we, need to, we need to stop doing that to each other. Yeah, Like absolutely. I said, society puts enough double standards on us already mm -hmm. that we need to stop doing that to each other. And we need to, I think, try our, try our best to respect other women's mm -hmm. choices, even if they're not the choices that we mm -hmm. would make. You know, everyone has the right to run her life Mm -hmm. how she wants. So I think we need to be more respectful of that. And, you know, just because someone isn't living the way that you would doesn't mean it's bad or it's wrong. That's a really good point. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> um, is there anything else you want to add to the questions before we get into stories of subversion? Um, no, I think I'm good. I feel like I, I feel like I've been talking this entire time. Oh, no. <laughs> well, that's why you're here. <laughs> All right, so we are going to move into stories of subversion, and we each have a great story for you today. Yes. Um, so my story, um, so I was kind of 
ins- what's the negative word that means inspired? <laughs> um, this kind of just came to me. Um, so I was at an exhibit at a local museum. I'm not going to say what it was, but there was an exhibit about bicycles. And in the copy from the exhibit, it mentioned that women weren't strong enough and they just weren't interested in cycling. <laughs> and I oh read that and I was like, huh. So I, I, I'm going to contact this organization and let them know that that copy is a little bit off. This is um, a bad history that you don't want in your historical right. novels, by the way. <laughs> so I'm trying not to say too much here, but that's how it kind of led me into doing a little bit more research about women and cycling. Uh, and so I didn't realize like how complex this is. I'm just going to focus on the Tour de France, um, but there's much more that goes into it. Um, and I'm going to dedicate to this this to my friend Liz, who just finished a cycling tour in Italy. Oh, so yay. she's right in there with this. Yeah, it sounded amazing, and I don't know, she is very fit. She did a lot of cycling over the course of the, those days. That's and amazing. I don't, I don't know if I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> so hey, Liz, shout out. <laughs> um, so the Tour de France is 104 years old. Okay, so it's been around 104 years, and women are. Still not included in it. Wow, I've never thought about that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, four, four years ago, I was in France and I was like, we were in Paris on the day before that mm-hmm. it, the Tour de France ended. So I was like hanging out on the finish line, like taking pictures. Didn't even consider, I just assumed that women were in the race. Didn't yeah. even think about the fact that they weren't. So they weren't. Yeah. Uh, and so. Prior to the 80s, so I don't even know how long that is, from the year like, I don't, like 1903 to 1980, which mm-hmm. is a really long stretch of time, the only way that women participated in the Tour de France was by being podium hostesses who handed out sashes and prizes, and that was it. That was the extent. <laughs> so that's a really long stretch. So then in the 80s, um, uh, 1984 actually, they started the Tour de France Feminine. Sorry, I don't speak French. I'm trying. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was like a shorter version of the Tour de France. Um, but it lapsed after a few years because it lacked mm-hmm. financial support. It lacked media coverage. And those are the things that you need to keep an event like that going. And they didn't have it. Um, and so that kind of went defunct. And then in the 80, or the 90s and the early 2000s, La Grande Boucle was born. Um, which was basically became known as the Women's Tour de France, um, but it was in August rather than in July. Some of the same issues, not a mm-hmm. whole lot of money, financial support, not a whole lot of media coverage. Um, and so then this whole time there were women who were cyclists and it's not that women weren't doing it. They just weren't being recognized for it. So four women in 2013, this is the year I was hanging out there on the the finish line. Um, (laughs) they were fed up. And so they wrote a petition calling for a woman's tour de France. Uh, and it was Chrissy Wellington, Emma Pooley, Catherine Bertin, and Marianne Voss. Um, and a quote from Marianne Voss, she said, we wanted a new women's tour de France back on the calendar. Um, of course, well, that was the big aim. So from that, as a result from that, La Course was born, which is um, a new race for women that was a result of this petition. And so it takes place the same time as the Tour de France. The Tour de France is three weeks. This yeah. race is two days. What? And this is, <laughs> the women are involved in this now. Um, and so it's just, so that's been going on now since 2013, um, but I still think, and again, this is speaking from someone who just like read a couple articles and is piecing <laughs> this together. I don't really know the full extent, but 
I don't think that's good enough. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, and so, I mean, just some of the classic arguments that I've had, I've had this conversation about a lot of sports with a lot of men, and I'm not a person who's particularly into sports, mm-hmm. but, I mean, women don't get funding for their sports, and they don't mm-hmm. get media coverage, and right. so a sport can't grow if they don't have those things, but then the argument is always like, well, you know, people are just not interested, and people are just not going to pay money for that, but I don't think people are given a chance to, and so right. that's really, you know... What happens there? So, and I just don't understand what the big deal is with the situation, why they won't just let women in. It's like a marathon. It's like a race. It's it's an individual sport. Right. I can understand if it was a team sport mm-hmm. that it would just, there would be a lot more hurdles to jump over. But here, you're just adding more people to the race. Or you could stagger it and have the men start at one point and the women start at another point. I just feel like there are a lot of solutions and I'm just, I'm wondering right. why there isn't. Well, I'm just sort of baffled by like if, and I, I, and saying this to someone who doesn't really know that much about mm-hmm. the Tour de France, but if a woman qualifies for it, she should get to race, right? Like, why? Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> like, I it, it seems like it's very simple. Like, I, I don't know if there's, like, a limited number of spots, mm-hmm. but it's like, okay, this is how many spots we have. Yeah. If you qualify, you're in. If you don't, you're not. And right. It shouldn't matter, I, right. I don't think. So, I don't, that I don't know. I don't know if there is a qualifying race. There must be. I would assume you have yeah. to qualify for it, yeah. So, then, okay, so now we bring it to 2017 here. So... <laughs> Um, the UCI, which is the Union Cyclist International, um, just picture that with a French accent. Um, it's the race that's the closest to the, the Tour de France. Uh, or no, I'm sorry, that's the organization that sponsors the race that's closest to the Tour de France for women, which is La Route de France Feminine. Um, and this year, there was a scheduling conflict with that race and another race, so they canceled the women's race. Come on. So it's not <laughs> happening. So... This is all, and like I said, this is all very new to me. I may have some facts wrong here. I, I used several different articles to do my research, um, but it just blows my mind that here we are in 2017 and women cannot be in the Tour de France. Right. That's, that's silly. <laughs> I mean, like, it would, like, all of sort of these obstacles it's run into that you were just describing, it would almost be funny if it wasn't so frustrating. It's like, really? Right. <laughs> it's just like... Really, you had a scheduling conflict. You can't... Schedule these things. <laughs> and that's, I mean, and that's, I'm looking at the, the other argument aside from, like, women don't bring in the same revenue and they aren't as strong as men is the argument. And that's what that sign at this local museum said, that women were not strong enough and not interested in cycling. But I feel like there was no consideration in writing that about, you know, women, the things that women were doing instead of cycling, like right. not being allowed to wear, I know I bring this up a lot, not being allowed <laughs> to wear pants, and right. maybe that makes it difficult to ride a bike. Like, there was just not a lot of consideration there, but I want to give props to the women that are cycling, and yeah. despite not having the recognition and not having the same payment that the men are getting. Yeah. Like your friends. Exactly. I'm, I'm super impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that she was in a race, but... She probably could be. Yeah. <laughs> but still, just, like, the level of endurance. Like, right. I, I don't I don't care for bike riding myself, mm-hmm. and I get tired. Like, when I've done it, I get tired. I go, like, a mile. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just, like, I just don't enjoy it. So I'm really impressed by anybody that, that can get on a bike and just go Absolutely. for a long period of time. All right. So let's hear your story All right. of subversion. So my story of subversion, um, I picked, and she's an Italian woman from history, because that's sort of... That's your thing. Sort of my thing. <laughs> Um, and she, I, I want to say 
There was an exhibit of her paintings in the U.S. recently. I should have looked up. Um, there was an NPR article about her not too long ago. Um, her name is Artemisia Gentileschi. Um, she was born in 1593. She died in 1653. Um, so to give oh, you an idea weird. of sort of what era we're, we're talking about. Um, so she was a painter. Um, and her father was also a painter. And so he, you know, saw that she was very talented. Um, he was, her father was sort of a, a follower of Caravaggio's style. And, and she was as well. And if you, if you look at her works and you're familiar with Caravaggio, you can definitely see his influence on her. Um, but so her father, you know, realized how talented she was and hired a painting teacher to teach her more, which, you know, we're all sort of thinking, great, like her father was very progressive. Well, this was all good um, until her painting teacher, whose name was Augustino Tassi, he raped her when she was, um, I didn't write down the year. She was, she was fairly young. I think she was a teenager, like maybe early 20s. Um, so she actually took him to court over it. And it was a horrible experience because she was actually tortured, um, like, for evidence. Like, they tortured her to make sure she was telling the truth. Oh, my gosh. Um, which is obviously horrible. Um, but he was actually sentenced. He was actually convicted, and he was sentenced to eight months in prison, which I don't think is long enough. <laughs> um, but for, you know, 1600s Italy, I guess. Yeah, I think I that's, guess that's better than nothing. Right. <laughs> um, at least he was, he was convicted, which, you know, I, I don't read about many rape convictions right. in Italy at that time. Um, so anyway, so, you know, she actually, she went on then after that to be married. She had two daughters of her own who also grew up to be painter, painters, which I think is really cool. Um, and this, so this is a detail that I really love about this story. And I keep coming back to that word resilience, but I think it sort of speaks to this. She, you know, kept painting, kept working. And um, she did a painting of the story of Judith and Holofernes from the Bible, which is where um, Judith was a Hebrew woman who um, snuck into the tent of this opposing army's general the night before there was going to be this battle. And she seduced him and got him drunk and cut his head off. Um, so you see this scene um, and a lot of a lot of art depicts this scene. Um, but so um, Artemisia's painting, she gave Holofernes the face of her rapist. So, you know, in the painting, Judith is cutting off this man's head and it was the man who raped her. And I, I just think that that's, you know, we, we're sort of familiar today with the term art therapy. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's like a really good example of, you know, she went through this horrible thing and she went through this trauma and she like poured that into her mm -hmm. artwork. And she, you know, I, I like to think that that was healing for her. I hope um, so. I hope so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and so her, a lot of her work is actually in the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. Mm -hmm. So she's, you know, if you, if you know about Italian art, um, she's pretty well known. Um, and yeah, look up her paintings. She's, <laughs> she's really awesome. So that was, that's my story of subversion. Mm -hmm. I like that. That's definitely a subversive act of yes. putting his face in the painting. Yeah. The decapitated man. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> All right. Well, Alyssa, thank you so much for being here. Is there anything else you want to add? No, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming. This is so great. I this. I, I mean, I hope everyone's interested in this episode. I just love talking about literature. So it's <laughs> kind of us like geeking out. Yes, I know. I, yeah, I got very excited. <laughs> uh, we'll actually tell our listeners where they can get your book. Oh, for sure. Books. Um, so yeah, so both books are available basically wherever books are sold. Um, so Barnes Noble, Amazon. I always like to recommend that you buy from your local independent bookstore if you possibly can. 
Um, and they're also available in ebook version as well if you prefer to read on e-reader. Um, and you can also go to my website, alyssapalumbo.com, um, if you're interested in reading more about my books. I have, you know, some fun, I do blog posts and things about different aspects of the writing process, and I talk about, you know, some of the artwork in The Most Beautiful Woman in Florence and things like that. So that's alyssapalumbo.com. Um, and yeah, and you can also find me, if you go to my website, it has my Twitter handle and my Instagram handle and everything as well. I tweet about books and oh great occasionally politics so (laughs) So that's what you're in for (laughs) well thank you so much and listeners just remember um rate review and subscribe on itunes thank you bye